0: Anchor is a Spotify-owned company that makes it easy for people to get into podcasting. It's an all-in-one, totally free platform where you can record a podcast, host it, distribute it, measure your performance analytics, and find sponsors. It all works in your web browser or through Anchor's mobile app. Give Anchor a try for free at anchor.com start. That's anchor.com start. This week on Myths and Legends, it's two fairy tales from Japan. On the first... You'll see how you might get way more than you bargained for from the produce department, and in the second, we'll see how mom's sewing kit might just contain a samurai sword. The creature, this time, is basically the life goals of every bat ever living so long that you turn into an angry old man. This is Myths and Legends, episode 149. Son of a peach. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's stories are about what happens when people get what they wished for. The first is an incredibly famous one about a cultural hero, and that's all I'm gonna say about that, even though a spoiler is in the title of the episode. The second story plays around with the tropes of the first story and is just really fun. Well, since there's no history or background, as these are basically fairy tales, I will quite literally get on with the show. Yes, shouted the old woman on her way out to the river. A peach. Wait, no, 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 it was leaving. The old woman ditched the clothes she had been washing in the river. A shirt could be replaced, but a peach was a peach. This was a big deal. She swatted at the water with a broom handle, but the peach only kept flowing downriver. She ran alongside. She began to despair. The most delicious thing she had seen in years was floating away, and there was nothing she could do. That was when she had an idea, a song. So, as we all sing from time to time in the supermarket to get produce, she, too, began a tune. Distant water is bitter, the near water is sweet pass by the distant water, and come into the sweet. It didn't make a ton of sense if you stopped to think about the lyrics, but that didn't stop her from liking it, and, oddly enough, didn't stop the peach from liking it. It stopped flowing downriver, and slowly began moving toward the bank. Soon, the delectable fruit came to rest in the dirt. Joyfully, the woman scooped it up. In a life with very little fresh fruit, she could hardly believe the scent The feel and the reality of this lone peach, let alone one that was this big, was the size of a basketball and perfectly ripe. Beaming, the woman stood and began a long walk home. When her husband, the old man, returned, sweaty from a long day cutting grass for the local farmers and gripping a bag of rice that would last them the rest of this month, he immediately noticed the glorious produce. What? A solitary peach? Had they won the lottery or something? The woman smiled. (laughs) I know, right? Hurry, bring a knife. Oh, hey, let's, uh, let's put that knife away. I'll help, the couple heard. They looked around. There was no one else in sight. On the table, the peach began to rock back and forth, and then it split in half. There, between both halves, was a little naked baby, no bigger than, well, a giant peach pit. He strode out and looked up at the elderly couple. Okay, he knew how this looked, but he wasn't a demon or a fairy. In fact, he was from the gods. They had heard the couple's cry for children for years on end, and he'd been sent to be their son in their old age. Dumbfounded, the elderly couple looked at one another. Wow, cool. An unplanned child when they were in their 60s with barely enough energy or money to keep food on the table for themselves. So, so great. The baby, however, had strutted out of the peach and into their hearts. In what had to be an awkward yet endearing little hug, the walking, talking, four inch tall naked peach baby went to his new parents and they hugged him. They were a family. He didn't stay four inches tall forever, though. He grew, and grew, and grew. He grew until he was a head taller than his peers, and he towered over his stooped and aging parents. They named him Momotaro, which meant son of a peach, because, well, baby names are hard. At about 15 years of age, he and his dad had the talk. Wait, you're answering a call to adventure, and you want to leave home to go adventuring across the known world? The father sputtered. Momotaro grimaced. Yeah, okay, so dad wasn't really as thrilled as he hoped he would be about this. It would only be a few months, a year, tops, he explained, and it was just an island fortress, dad. Momotaro's hand flew to his mouth, but dad's eyes widened. Go on. Reluctantly, Momotaro continued. It was really just such a small thing. It's not even worth talking about. It was so small. But yeah, it's just this tiny island fortress. You know, full of your standard demons, just the regular ones. They were just terrorizing the land and also cannibals. The boy's father didn't respond. And Momotaro bit his lip. Dad, dad, please. I really want to go, dad. Come on. All my friends will be there and, well, actually I'm going to be storming this fortress alone, but please. Dad. But the old man was not happy. Not only was this his only son, his only child, and he loved the boy and blah, 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 but he was getting old. The kid was not only his only employee, but his retirement plan as well. In that time, you had kids, in part, to take care of you when you grew too old and were unable to work anymore. And so now, just as dad was aging and Momotaro was about to reach adulthood, the boy wanted to leave on a quest where he would surely die. Sure, he'd arrived through a magical birth and was kind of tall, but he turned out to be a very regular boy, and the family couldn't bear to lose him. Now, as a kid reading this, I would be like, yeah, Momotaro, you go, call to adventure. But as an adult with my own kid, I'm like, absolutely not. No way is my 15-year-old whose only combat experience is lawn mowing trudging to an island full of cannibal demons to fight them single-handedly? Like, I acknowledge that there's not much I can do at that point. The kid is super strong, and I'm a 65-year-old lawnmower, so if he's going to live, he's going to do it no matter what I say, but I'm going to make him do it literally over my dead body. Momotaro's dad didn't say any of that, though. Maybe he decided that this kid was born as a miracle, with some knowledge of heaven's will for him. Or maybe the kid was a buff teenager, bent on going on a quest, and there was pretty much nothing his elderly father could do to stop him, either physically or if the kid just wanted to sneak out of the house in the night. Who knows? But either way, his parents finally agreed and consented to let their son travel across Japan in the Middle Ages, an extremely dangerous proposition in itself, to battle cannibalistic demons in their home fort, a problem not even the emperor himself could fix. The next morning, Momotaro set out, rice cakes in his pack and, frankly, An ill conceived dream in his heart, and he left his small home. His stooped and aging parents stood out front, hoping and praying that they would see him again. You are rude to pass by my field without permission. Leave me all the kicks you have in your bag, or I will bite you until I kill you, which, yes is a horrible way to be killed," the dog said to Momotaro. The boy had been on the road for only a few hours when he came across a stray dog. Like most, he ignored the dog and kept moving. But unlike most, the dog began barking threats about biting him to death. Momotaro turned with indignation. Did this dog know who he was? He was Momotaro and he was going to the Northeast to subdue the demons on their island stronghold. If the dog tried to stop Momotaro, Momotaro would cut him in half from the head downwards, when he got a sword, that is. He was working on that. Well, it turned out that the stray dog had heard of Momotaro before, likely on account of being peach-born, making you a prime dinner conversation far and wide. So the dog held up his paws. Whoa, 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 whoa. He didn't mean anything by it. He definitely liked having a whole head, so, yeah, sorry about that, buddy he'd had no idea that this kid was the Momotaro who was born from a giant peach. Sitting promptly at the boy's feet, the dog looked up. Hey, if it was cool with Momotaro, could the dog come with? Though he didn't let on, Momotaro barely had any idea what he was doing and could really use the help. Yes, he decided. Yes, the dog could come along. He patted the stray on his head and the dog smiled. Momotaro nodded. Okay, first things first, he had to pay the dog for a service. He tossed the dog half a rice cake, all he could spare, and the pair continued on. In time, the pair grew into a trio, with the addition of a talking monkey, and then a foursome, with the recruitment of a talking pheasant. All the while, the dog played gatekeeper, wary of anyone else joining the party. He wasn't keen on the monkey and the bird joining their group, and ignored the fact that they could really use all the help they could get. Still, it was Momotaro who expanded the band, and the dog accepted the change. And so the uneasy foursome made their way to the northeastern sea, Momotaro gaining some semblance of control over the animals by saying the next one who started a fight would be dismissed from his service, which really seems like a good way to encourage more fights about who started it, but whatever. At the edge of the sea, Momotaro wondered what they were going to do to get across said sea. That's when he heard something thumping on the rocks below. He glanced down. Oh, a boat. Huh. And what was that inside it? Oh. The samurai never really stood a chance. The demon that had attacked him had taken a chunk out of his side and he had bled out in retreat. Momotaro dragged him from the boat and the group cremated him right there on the beach that very night. As grim as it was, it gave Momotaro the hope that he was on heaven's chosen path. The man had left behind his boat and his weapons. Momotaro told his tiny animal army to sleep up. Tomorrow, they would row north. Quick sidebar, this didn't happen in the original story, but something had to happen, because Momotaro, the poor son of a lawnmower, had both a boat and a sword when he sailed north. The story says that the emperor had been sending fighters to the island with no avail, so it seemed in line with the original to have a half-eaten warrior provide him with supplies. At last, push came to shove, and it was time for action. Step one, take the fact that their team was stealthy, small, extremely quiet, and wearing absolutely no armor, and throw that advantage right out the window, because they would send the least intimidating of the three, the pheasant, and announce that the great Japanese general Momotaro was here. And, if the demons valued their lives, they were to break off their own horns surrender. Well, the demons obviously did not surrender. And instead, they righted their iron spears and donned their stripy tiger skin pants. They were ready. While the pheasant was getting the attention of all the demons in the castle, Momotaro made landfall. And amidst the sound of iron spears clanging on the rocks, Momotaro, the monkey, and the dog chanced upon two maidens washing blood from their clothes in the river. They said they were the daughters of some daimyos or feudal lords and they were kidnapped by the demons. Momotaro smirked and, with too much swagger, said that he was a 15-year-old born from a peach. He would rescue them, just point him in the direction of the castle's entrance. Elsewhere, the pheasant bravely dive-bombed the demons, drawing all their spears beyond the wall. The pheasant was small and nimble, dodging as the weapons flew after one another. The plan was working, the ruckus at the wall hid the first several deaths as the monkey jumped from demon to demon, burying the samurai's knives in at every stop. Eventually, the screams caught the demon's attention and they turned back to what was happening inside the walls, allowing the pheasant time to make his move. He dove in and, one by one, hooked his talons into the cloth and straps of the nearby demons, pulling them off balance. Not much, but enough. Enough to send them crashing to the rocks below and it was then that the dog made good on his threat, to bite people to death. Taking out all of his road trip frustration on the many demon throats strewn throughout the courtyard. And Momotaro? Momotaro was also going in for the kill. Well, he was going in for a lot of kills, actually. But one in particular. He was headed straight for the chief. He dashed through the hallways like a shadow, bypassing demons running for the walls when he could, and killing them when he could not. As he crept... He freed as many captives as he could, instructing them to take the fallen demon's weapons and join the fight. At last, he arrived in the main room. There would be no fight. The head demon came rushing from the room in response to the clamor outside and immediately felt the tip of a sword on the back of his neck. He froze. He'd fallen for the bait and he was now helpless in his own stronghold. Momotaro ordered him to his knees and the demon threw up his hands. obliged. It was over. Except Momotaro didn't kill the demon. It wasn't his job. The demon would answer to the emperor for his crimes. Quickly, the group and all the freed captives prepared for the journey to the emperor. The demons had stockpiled stolen riches. And after the captives took what they needed, the group turned to Momotaro. Their freedom was priceless, and he should take the rest. Days later, as the crowd of freed captives arrived at the capital. Followed closely by a buff 15-year-old and a bound demon flanked by a monkey holding a knife to his neck, Momotaro was formally lauded as a hero. And weeks later, word of his triumph reached home before he did. Even before Momotaro reached the house, the boy's parents started running to their precious son, arms outstretched. He had done it. He had come home to them. Momotaro cleared his throat and stepped aside to reveal a wagon full of gold. Not only would Momotaro and his parents not have to ever mow another lawn again, but they would have peaches at dinner every night. The story of Momotaro is a super popular one, even though it's pretty by the numbers in terms of fairy tales. Our next one, however is not. The story of the Inchai Samurai will be right after this. Alright, now back to the show. The old woman looked down at her belly, cradling the small bump beneath her clothes. She looked at her husband. It, it should be bigger at this point, right? The old man smiled with a questioning look. He wasn't sure, but yes, yeah, he agreed. At 39 weeks, both knew something was wrong. The baby bump should be a lot bigger by now. Huh, the husband said and bit his lip. He was about to turn to his wife and tell her of the prayers he had made about how he said he didn't care about what his child looked like or how big he or she turned out to be. The couple just wanted a child. Now, however, he was starting to worry that the gods might have taken him literally. But that was when her water broke. They had feared the worst when a baby no bigger than half the size of a thumb came out. Weeks and months of joyful anticipation had ended with a stillborn. The process halted way too soon. The couple clung to each other and they both cried. They were too old or maybe the gods were too cruel. Either way, they would never have a child. But then, their cries were joined by another, a baby's cry. Wiping tears from their eyes in utter confusion, the couple scooped it up and took a closer look. How could this be? It was a fully formed baby, a boy, no bigger than a jelly bean. Carefully, they cut the tiniest blanket from their bigger ones, whittled down a stick to drop milk in his mouth, and smiled they had a boy, a healthy baby boy. Time passed, and the boy the size of the jelly bean grew bigger, just not that much. After about a year, he had only grown a few millimeters. Eventually, the old man came clean to the old woman, about his prayers long ago. But honestly, she didn't care. They both loved the little one, who they affectionately named Isambushi, or One Inch Boy. I'm gonna call him Inch High from here on out, however, after a title he'll strive to attain in the story. Inch High wanted to be a samurai, and even his parents could only laugh. They were supportive, but you know, up to a point. Be reasonable, they insisted, He could never even lift a samurai sword, his mother told him with a smile. She sat there sewing and grinned again. She paused, holding up a needle in the air, and looking at her son. She leaned over and handed it to the boy. That was about the right size, actually. She gave him a bit of straw to tie around his waist as a sling, and looked on her adorable little guy. The issue? He didn't think he was all that adorable. He thought he was fearsome. So fearsome, in fact, Like Momotaro and countless other boys before him, he heard the call to adventure and knew he must go on to follow his dreams. He must be a samurai. Stunned, his parents sat there speechless. Okay, they finally managed. He had goals and that was fantastic, but maybe he could do something a little less, I don't know, impossible? Inchai held up his hands. He understood but he had talents too. For example, he could escape from anything. See that crack in the wall no bigger than a piece of straw? Yeah, that was nothing. Did his parents understand? Yes. The implication? His parents gritted their teeth. Yes, they understood. Three weeks later, with about a month's worth of food, so about a quarter cup of rice, packed in an inch high paper boat, his parents helped him down into the river. He had his provisions, his weapon, and his means of transportation. Grinning wide, Inchai asked his parents to keep an ear out. If they heard about the exploits of the Inch-High Samurai, then they knew that it was their son, and he'd made it. His parents pursed their lips. I mean, yeah, who else would they be talking about? And if they didn't hear about the Inchai Samurai, they could pretty much safely assume that he had been eaten by a rat or stepped on or run over by a cart or trampled by a horse or... Inchai stopped them right there. All right. Thank you for the optimism. Love you. Bye. (music) Weeks later, Inchai, now caked in blood and grime, dipped into a puddle for a quick bath. The capital dangerous for a normal-sized person, was deadly for someone only an inch tall. But day after day, and week after week, he made his way slowly across it, until, finally, he arrived at the house of a daimyo, a lord. A servant at the door almost stepped an inch high, but when he saw the little creature waving back at him, he knelt down and put him in the palm of his hand. This, this thing was clothed like a samurai and fierce, yet so unbelievably small. It was both adorable and incredibly weird. The daimyo laughed at the little curiosity, but Inchai was deadly serious. He bowed low and offered his service to the daimyo, who, yes, made the little guy dance a degrading little jig, but finally threw an appointment his way. Inchai was now the Inchai Samurai. When the daimyo snapped awake the next morning, hungover, he realized two things. One, that little guy who was doing funny jigs in the palm of his hand actually existed. And two, he had no idea what jobs to give Inchai. When Inchai reported for duty the next morning, the daimyo threw up his hands. He didn't know. Ah, but then he held up a finger. He had a very special mission for Inchai. One he couldn't trust to any of his other guys. Inchai leaned in closer. Yes, the daimyo nodded. Yeah, it was an important one. It was, his daughter. Daughter, Inchai asked. Did she need protecting? The daimyo nodded with narrowed eyes. Oh yeah, and more importantly, she loved dolls and weird little playthings. The daimyo nodded to the non-Inchai Sam Ryan attendance, and the man pinched Inchai between his finger and thumb and took the self-serious samurai to meet his new charge. With legs dangling dangerously high in the air, Inchai shouted back that he would be happy to take on this new mission, as if he had any choice. Cut to three months later, and we find Inchai finally getting his big break in his career, and in love. You see, Inchai was originally just supposed to be the plaything for the daimyo's daughter. But soon, as time passed, and Inchai was pretty much the only guy she was allowed to speak to, the daughter began to develop feelings for her little protector-slash-doll. Maybe this was helped along by what some of the bodier versions describe as, in Chai's surprise, proficiency, when it came to more intimate matters between the couple. I'll let your imagination help you out with that one, because I certainly won't. But yes, the pair fell in love. They kept their love secret, and the daughter was happy for her new boyfriend, on the day he received his big task from the daimyo, escorting the daughter to the temple to pray. Now, in truth, it was a task she had often done alone. But Inchai didn't know that, and the daimyo wasn't about to waste this opportunity to get Inchai to shut up about asking for a new samurai task. So, riding atop her shoulder, Inchai accompanied his love to the temple. The daughter of the daimyo must have felt safe in Inchai's presence, because the pair hadn't left the temple until the sun was starting to dip on the horizon. Making their way back, Inchai's confidence calmed the daughter, and she knew they were going to be okay. And it was at that moment that two Oni, two ogres, leapt from the woods to eat the daughter, who they thought was walking alone in the forest. Except she was not alone. Inchai was already running along her shoulder, ready for the fight. The blue Oni saw him flying through the air, and at the last possible moment, caught Inchai in his mouth like someone catches a piece of popcorn. He chewed, swallowed, and the princess screamed. The two oni smiled as they walked up to the daughter. That was such a nice appetizer. Now, for the main course. And they murdered her there in the woods and ate her. All across the land, no one ever knew what happened to her or Inchai in the end. No, I mean, of course that's not what happened. The blue oni did eat Inchai. But Inchai deftly dodged the ogre's teeth and stabbed the oni's esophagus riding the sword down like a pirate rides a sail, landing at last in the beast's stomach. Inchai got to work, stabbing the oni's soft stomach walls while dodging sprays of bubbling stomach acid. He was making quick work when a louder gurgle bubbled from below. Liquid surged all around, catching Inchai by surprise. Up he rode, nearing the top of the stomach, available space dwindling fast, when suddenly, the esophageal sphincter opened up and he surged the Oni had vomited. The daughter watched as the Oni doubled over in pain, heaving multiple times, streaking his blue Sesame Street fur with bile and blood. Because the plot demanded it, and for pretty much no other reason, the red, demonic Elmo-looking Oni rushed to the pile of vomit and found the only thing that Blue had eaten in the past day, Inchai. Knowing that he had to take care of this creature who threatened their lives before eating the daughter, instead of just stepping on him, He gripped Inchai and brought the tiny samurai toward his mouth. You know, because we all go rooting through our friend's vomit so we can re-eat the very thing that caused them to be sick in the first place. Inchai glared and waited. He feigned helplessness, but it didn't catch him by surprise this time. He was covered in bile and spit, and when the time came and he was inches from the red oni's mouth, he kicked himself free. He leapt. Brandishing his needle katana, he did a flip and buried it deep within the creature's eye. The red oni, blinded in one eye, shrieked. Inchai planted two feet on his eyeball and did a backflip backwards, back onto the shoulder of the daimyo's daughter. The pair of oni, not knowing how things could go so wrong so quickly, scrambled to their feet and dashed for the forest, getting as far away as they could from that inch-high monster. Heart pounding, the daimyo's daughter took inch into her hands, and raised him to her mouth, where she kissed him. Keep in mind that for Inchai it was basically all lip, and for the Daimyo's daughter, he was basically a vomit covered bean. But hey, they were happy to be alive. It was a beautiful moment, and when Inchai opened his eyes, something caught his eyes. It was the magic hammer. Phrase that I won't attempt to say, but literally translates to hammer that strikes anything out. Basically, You only needed to swing, shake, or strike the hammer, and it would give you what you wished for. And here is where we start forking off between different versions of the story. In the earliest versions, Inch High shakes the magic hammer, and fantastic riches pour out. He becomes a court favorite on account of his riches, and great dance moves. In the more recent tellings of this folktale, the daughter places him on the ground. He tells her to wish that he was the size of a normal human, and strike him. She looked at the hammer looked at him, and laughed. He was smaller than a nail, it would destroy him. But Inchai insisted that she trust him, saying that all their dreams were about to come true. Ultimately, she chose to trust him, closed her eyes, wished he was normal-sized, and hefted the magic hammer. Moments later, when the girl allowed herself to peek out at what she had done, she couldn't believe her eyes the immediately inaccurately named Inchai Samurai, now stood before her, beaming. He was now full-sized. They embraced, and together, they walked hand in hand, back to her father's estate. As the couple made their way up the stairs, gasps rose from the gathered crowds. Who was this handsome stranger? A flurry of surprise rippled through the people, before a hush fell over them all. Wait, this, this was Inchai? News traveled fast and the father came out to meet the returning pair. He stood, beaming, proud of the young man capable of defeating two Oni in his previous state and he went on to publicly honor Inchai. Of course, now that he was normal-sized, he was no longer allowed to stay in the princess's room but that was quickly fixed when the two were married. Now the son of a daimyo, Inchai returned to his parents. He took the hammer and shook out riches for them. Then, he returned to the capital and his new wife. He became well-known in the land as one of the greatest samurai, and he and his family lived happily ever after. For about a year. What happens next is part of some of the most popular versions of the story, and I love it, but it's not really found in the earliest tellings. Unfortunately, after Inchai became average-sized, he slowly became insufferable. He'd killed two Oni when he was just an inch tall and yeah, he was a very skilled samurai. Have you heard? Yes, we've heard, Inchai. Everyone has heard. You can stop introducing yourself like that. He was incredibly annoying. When he was little, people mostly accepted it as the charming overconfidence that you kind of needed to accomplish anything when you were only an inch tall. But when you're normal-sized it just comes off as arrogance. And today, the husband and wife were fighting. Again. Some say it was due to his overconfidence. Others insist that it was because Inchai was no longer skilled in the way that he was when he was just an inch tall. The point is that they were arguing again and this time, in their yelling match, she picked up the hammer and cursed the day she found this thing. She liked him better when he was small. You wrenched the hammer from her. Oh yeah? like when he was nothing more than her plaything. He wished she knew what it was like to be an inch high. He didn't know why he said it, just like that. And he especially didn't know why he struck out at that moment with the hammer, but he did. In an instant, his wife shrunk down to his feet, standing no more than an inch high. Horrified, he dropped the hammer and it thudded to the ground. What had he done? He was so sorry. He bent down to pick her up, but she was already running toward him with the hammer, yelling something. It touched his foot and immediately, he was looking at her in the eye in a room that was suddenly cavernous. Inch high, it seemed, was back to being an inch high. She dropped the hammer, went over to him and apologized. He was outraged. This was his nightmare. He still dreamed of being returned to his old form every night, he pushed her aside, in his rage, and rushed to the hammer, he was still able to lift it, and he brought it down again on her, wishing she was even smaller, he couldn't trust her, and he had to use it on himself next, to become full sized again, he hated her now, and wanted her out of the way, he watched as she shrunk down so small, that she was almost out of sight, he sighed, alright, all he had to do was hit himself, and, but then he saw it, a speck of air flying at him, dropping from where she had been. It was his wife, and she was fuming. She fell on the hammer, and it moved ever so slightly with her weight, tapping him on the shoulder. She, of course, had wished the same thing on him. He shrunk and shrunk and fell. No bigger than specks of dust, they climbed over ridges on the wooden table to find each other, a trip that was no less than ten minutes. They yelled, but both agreed that this situation was getting out of hand. They decided that they would work together to lift the hammer. Unfortunately, after another 30-minute hike to the hammer, the couple found that they were so small that they couldn't even lift it, no matter how hard they tried. To them, it was just an unending wall of metal. Panic setting in, they realized that they needed help. Fortunately, a loyal servant popped his head in the room at that very moment. This was perfect, my lady, inch high, called the servant, looking down at the table and seeing only the hammer. At the Daimyo's daughter and her husband were much too small for him to see at that distance with the naked eye. Hm. I thought they were in here, he said to himself and shrugged. Down on the table, the couple stood screaming at the servant who, of course, couldn't hear their cries. He turned around and closed the door and that small amount of wind was enough to sweep inch high and his wife off the table and into the room, away from the magic hammer, forever. And that's it for the story this week. Next week, we're taking a rare week off, just one. But we'll be back the following week, where we're going to get back into things with an Estonian epic, a different Darker take on Mulan, someone making the most famous deal with the devil, and the first episode of the Trojan War. If you're looking to support the show or want to get more out of it, there's a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a phone conversation privacy mask, that's right, a bane-looking contraption of an oddity that covers your entire lower jaw and mouth while you casually chat with your friends anywhere you like, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show that won't make you look like you're your own hostage situation, or clearly don't know how to wear the ugliest pair of earmuffs ever made. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is, well, it's a few creatures from Japanese folklore. As we all know, when when animals live too long, they get superpowers. That's just common knowledge. Cats are probably the most dangerous... What with combining a normal cat's general disdain for the world with limitless powers? Yeah, pretty terrifying. Bats are another such animal. And when they live for a long time, they become a nobusuma. Which is similar to a Japanese flying squirrel. Nobusuma are similar to big vampire bats. Like most bats, they enjoy insects, fruits, and nuts. And when they're really wanting to treat themselves, they like to eat fire. And yes, human faces. They aren't really into your face though they're looking for your bad breath, or blood, those not really being the same thing at all. One version is just your standard night terror sleep paralysis sort of deal, where it lands on the victim's chest and taps on it until they start coughing. When they do, it sucks up your bad breath. The other version will find you on the road and latch onto your face until it drains you of your blood. Both are different, both are deadly. If the bat lives long enough to turn into a Nobusuma, and that Nobusuma lives long enough in that form, it will again transform into a hairy old man. This creature is known as the Momoniji, which I read means really, really old man. He hangs out in the wilderness and assaults travelers, his preference being crying children. So yeah, if we have any bats listening to this, dream big, guys. Maybe one day you can be lucky enough to turn into a flying squirrel who eats fire and bites faces. Dream even bigger, though, and that squirrel can grow into a creepy old man who only exists to beat up crying children. So inspirational. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature the week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes, and I want to say thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring us this week. Whatever struggles you're facing, from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And everything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it is a truly affordable option. Myths and Legends listeners, get 10% off your first month with the discount code LEGENDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com legends and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with the counselor you'll love today. All right, thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.